All right, time bandits. You ready for your bonus show? The research I did for the Ukraine show turned up a lot of extra material, and not all of it can make it into the show proper. But so much of it was just too damned interesting to leave on the cutting room floor. But fortunately, you guys have expressed an interest above and beyond that of the normals. So I'm pretty confident that you'll find this stuff interesting too, and we can get a fun bonus show out of it. The current Ukraine-Russia war is obviously horrible, because war. But it's also morbidly fascinating in so many ways, because it represents a real epoch. We've got two distinct eras clashing here, and it is very interesting for the historically conscious, which is us. Because this is the first war of the Web 2.0 era, the social media era where everyone has the internet on a device in their pocket. That in itself represents something that is going to be talked about in high school history classes for hundreds of years. And on the other hand, while we're talking about all of this advanced 2020s stuff using technology that is all astonishingly new and straight from the future, we've got the Russian army who are conducting this war in a very, very Soviet fashion, falling for all of the same traps that they fell for during the Cold War. The old and the new are clashing, and that is always interesting in the eyes of history. Ukraine is fighting one of the great guerrilla campaigns. I guess every war is a guerrilla war to some extent. All warfare has been irregular since 1945, but Ukraine are really providing a great template for anyone thinking of casting off the shackles of oppression. If you've been following this show for a while, you'll know that I live in constant hope that the workers of the world will one day universally unite and throw off the shackles of our oppressors, but I'm getting sidetracked. Some definitions, just in case anyone isn't a military history buff. A regular war is when two armies square off against each other, sort of mano y mano, but on an army scale. We don't get that these days because there are only a few big armies in the world capable of trading blows with one another. And if they ever fought, the whole world would be nuked, so they tend to not do that. And they haven't done that for a very long time. And a month ago, I would have put Russia on that list. But I'm becoming increasingly skeptical of their martial prowess. Irregular war is everything else. It's when you square off against a regular army with everything you've got at your disposal. Ambushes, low blows, dirty tricks, or to quote Uncle Doug Stanhope, dog doing a wrist rocket. It's when you fight dirty. And guerrilla war basically means irregular war. It's when the little guy fights the big guy. Guerrilla is Spanish for little war. The most potent example of guerrilla war you're going to find in history is the Vietnam War, in which the Viet Cong lost almost every single battle quite decisively, but ultimately won the war. Although Vietnam had absolutely no hope of going toe-to-toe with the United States and its utterly astonishing military might, They endured the losses and made continuing the war so unpalatable to the US that the war wasn't worth fighting anymore. And that's pretty much what an irregular war boils down to, making it so that one side can't be bothered doing it anymore. 
You saw it with the Viet Cong in the 60s. You saw it with the Afghans against the Soviets in the 70s and 80s. You saw it with the Afghans again against the United States for as long as most of my audience has been alive. And you're seeing it in the Ukraine today. I stand by my statement that Ukraine will not survive if Russia sends all of her might into battle. But this show today is going to be all about how Russia won't, and even can't, send everything they've got at Ukraine. And I'll do one of those, the more you know, quick asides here. I pointedly said Viet Cong just then, and that's technically correct, but it doesn't tell the whole story. The term Viet Cong describes guerrilla fighters operating in South Vietnam. They were independent freedom fighters operating with the support of the official People's Army of North Vietnam. So, rebels, basically. This will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi, and will soon see the end of the rebellion. The Viet Cong were the next stage of the Viet Minh, which means League of Vietnamese Independence, who were a group that were fighting for Vietnamese sovereignty for decades, mostly against the French and the Japanese. So in case you didn't know, that's how all of those elements fit together. But back to Ukraine. So what Ukraine is doing right now is a guerrilla war. A little war. They can't go toe-to-toe with Ivan, so they're floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee, and they're doing a lot better at it than anyone really expected. I mentioned during the show that guerrilla war always tends to favour the defensive party. It's hard to hold on to territory that doesn't want to be held on to. Simply put, you can't put everyone under martial law at all times. It just takes far too many resources. You need your army out there being an army. You don't want to have to leave a garrison behind at every settlement you come across just to make sure that people aren't going to stab you in the back. You very quickly start to diminish your own forces. This has been true since time immemorial. Ask Breaker Morant about it. The Assyrians had this problem. The Romans had this problem. The British had this problem. Absolutely everyone has this problem. Well, everyone except the Mongols. The Mongols would just kill absolutely everyone so that they never had to leave behind a garrison, but the Mongols are statistical outliers in so, so many ways. The locals will always know the land, know their strengths, they'll always be able to blend back into the crowd, they will always have the advantage. Actually conquering a nation is hard, and it is always messy. Too messy. Julius Caesar, greatest person in history, murdered Upwards of 6 million people doing this. Conquering is hard, and we don't really see it anymore because the international community generally is too strong. Nobody is going to let you kill a few million people and wipe out their culture so that they lose the will and social impetus to fight back. It's why borders have been reasonably stable since 1945. And I say reasonably because a lot of shit has gone down, and I don't want to touch the beehive in Africa, but for the most part it holds true but I am ignoring the Uyghur massacre in China. So aside from all of the times that this isn't true, this is generally true. (laughs) I know, cop out. But that's what we're seeing with Ukraine today. On the other hand, the Russians really are not doing well. In fact, they are showing the entire world exactly how not to fight a war. It's going about as poorly as it could possibly be going for the bear. Sun Tzu must be rolling in his grave right now, watching the Russians absolutely fuck up the entire invasion. Putin, did you even read The Art of War? There's like 10 chapters on logistics. That's how important it is. So we all know not to attack Russia, right? And especially do not attack Russia in the winter. Everyone knows this, right? Napoleon did it, and that was the end of him. Hitler did it, and that was the end of him. You do not march into Russia. Everyone who does this dies. 
Well, except for the Mongols, but again, statistical outliers. Russia is one of the great defensive powers. Russia is a big, cold, angry land filled with Russians who are big, cold, angry people. Ideally, you do not want to attack that. And the primary means of getting around Russia is the vast Russian train network. Everything that gets transported around Russia is done by train. It's the cheapest, easiest, and most efficient means of transporting everything through this cold, angry Iceland. And this is what has made Russia one of the best defensive nations in the history of man. When you attack Russia, they get all of their people from all over their massive country and put them on trains bound for wherever the fighting is. The Germans found this out in two world wars. Once Russia gets going, they just start swarming you with troops from everywhere, just a never-ending stream of reinforcements arriving by train. And even if you manage to fight your way into Russia, they can just destroy the train tracks as they retreat, meaning that they're still pulling in reinforcements, but you won't be able to do the same thing unless you take the effort to rebuild all of that rail infrastructure. That in the current war, Russia isn't the defender. They're the aggressors. And the Russians are really, historically, really not good at this. Because while that train network might work really well within Russia, it stops at the Russian border. If you get a couple of kilometers past the last Russian train station, they start to have problems. Big problems. Because Russia is so heavily reliant on their train network within Russia itself, Once those trains get taken out of the equation, they don't really have much else to work with. Russian logistics are, and I'm using the technical term here, absolutely shite. And you better believe the first thing the Ukrainians did when the war started was blow up their train tracks as they were retreating so the Russians couldn't use them. The first problem the Russians had was that this wasn't exactly a sneak attack. Ukraine knew it was coming for months in advance. Now, obviously, there's things like satellites and drones and the usual stuff. Boring, right? Well, what about this? A uniquely 2022 situation that Russia never really accounted for because nobody's ever dealt with it before. The reason why the invasion wasn't a surprise to anyone was another byproduct of the day and age that we live in, something that hasn't really happened in a war before. And it's all because Ukraine and Russia, like so many countries in the world, have a real problem with insurance fraud. Within these countries, there's an epidemic of people running into cars on the street and then trying to sue the drivers. So pretty much everyone in these two countries has a dash cam on their car recording at all times just in case someone tries to pull off an insurance scam. But an unforeseen byproduct of this was that whenever someone was stuck at a rail crossing within Russia waiting for a military convoy to roll past, the footage from their dash cams got logged and people were able to see exactly when, where, and how the Russians were moving material and the exact makeup of the forces that they were moving. From this dash cam footage, people were able to say, okay, here's 50 Russian T-72 battle tanks heading west at this intersection at this time. It is a truly remarkable future that we live in. Rommel would have killed for this level of intel. That is an orgy of intelligence. The Russian military invasion build-up took three months. Believe me, people noticed. 
This is a weird war simply because it's the first war of the social media age and we're beginning to see some of the psyops that will be mainstream in war moving forward. The most telling example came two days ago when Russian propaganda networks released a video of the Ukraine president Volodymyr Zelensky surrendering to the Russians. Now he most certainly didn't. This video was a deep fake. And deep fakes keep getting better and better, so they're going to be a problem moving forward. This is going to be a real problem in the not-too-distant future, because propaganda is built around stuff like this, and the Russians have been the world masters of propaganda for more than a century now. They literally wrote the book on it. And you should always remember that the goal of propaganda isn't to get you to believe something. That's very hard to do. No, the goal of propaganda is to get you to believe in nothing. It wants to wear you down and make you so deeply cynical that you don't believe anything you see anymore. That makes people think that the truth and obvious bullshit are somehow equivalent. And when that happens, bullshit has a distinct advantage because it's a lot easier to churn out. So Russia has this ability to churn out deep fake videos of what looks like Vladimir Zelensky. And this deep fake thing is why Zelensky has been going unshaven lately. Well, that and because he's in an active war zone. But the other reason is because deep fakes are good, but they're not perfect. And one of the things that they have trouble doing is modeling hair, especially fine frizzy hair like facial hair. So if you see a video of Vladimir Zelensky and he's just had a shave, then you can bet your sweet bippy that it's a Russian fake. The real Zelensky is a rugged, unshaven maverick. But let's go back to Russian logistics for a bit. This essay will be titled, Russian Logistics, The Shiteness Thereof. The big problem is that Russia doesn't have enough trucks to move crucial supplies. They don't have anywhere near enough trucks. They have stooped to conscripting civilian vehicles to act as transport for all of their logistics. Just like the British did at Dunkirk with boats, but worse because it's a war that they actually started. You can go online and you can see footage of this that people have uploaded to social media. It's utterly insane to look at. There are Russian trains filled with an assortment of civilian vehicles being ferried to the front lines. There are buses and flatbed pickup trucks, and one of them that I saw was dead set without a word of a lie, the mystery mobile from Scooby-Doo. Jinkies! Let's see who the ghost of Kiev is. Jinkies! It was Putin all along! So the problem with Russia is their reliance on trains. Take the trains out of the equation, and then they rely on trucks. And they do not have enough trucks. The entire Russian army has approximately 4,000 trucks. If you're thinking, hey, that's not a lot of trucks, then give yourself a pat on the back, because it is indeed not a sufficient number of trucks. It is, and again using the military parlance here, sweet fuck all. According to U.S. military analysis, Russian forces are incapable of operating more than 145 kilometers from friendly supply depots simply because of their reliance on these trucks and the inadequate amount of trucks that they have. The furthest they can go is 145 kilometers. The distance between Kiev and Russian puppet state Belarus is 150 kilometers. So you can see why the invasion sort of petered out where it did in the suburbs of Kiev. Russia was essentially invading in slow motion. Let's look at one particular example of this logistics snafu. And just as a note off the top of my head here, snafu is a military term. 
It's an acronym of Situation Normal All Fucked Up. So one particular example of this is the Russians have a piece of equipment known as the TOS-1 MLRS. So that's Multi-Launch Rocket System. The thing that you've seen that launches a volley of rockets, it's on the news all the time. It looks like a big calliope. It's a nasty piece of work. This thing is called the flamethrower because it launches thermobaric warheads that essentially ignite the air and create a massive pressure wave around them. And I was going to go into the details of how these work, but I realized that I shouldn't because it's horrible, but let's just say that they're bad for the human anatomy. These tanks, these TOS-1 tanks, these things fire 24 of these rockets per volley. They are very deadly. But because of Russia's super fucked up logistics train, once that thing fires, that's it. There is no second act. Each of these launch platforms has to wait around for a truck to become available and then wait for it to load up with missiles and then drive all the way to the artillery fire position with another batch of rockets so it can reload and do it again. As you can probably guess, this is far from optimal. If you've ever seen artillery in action, going all the way back to Napoleon's time, you want your artillery to be firing as much as possible. Fire, reload, fire, reload, fire, reload, for days and days if you need, or in the case of World War I, non-stop fire for over a week at a time. Fire, reload, fire, reload. It doesn't work as well when you're working like fire, call in a request for Uber ammunition, wait for a driver to become available, wait for him to go to the depot, wait for him to get ammunition, wait for him to drive all the way from Belarus, reload, fire, call in another request for Uber ammunition, wait more, so you see how this is a problem. Russia spent months stockpiling material, and it is still a problem. So Ukraine had a fair bit of time to prepare for all of this. They saw it coming. February 22nd wasn't exactly a surprise attack. Ukraine had been waiting for this for some time. Remember, Russia had annexed Crimea in 2014, and that never really went away. They've been at war for that length of time. Russia has been putting troops on the Ukraine border for a long, long time under the pretense of conducting military exercises, which, as anyone who has ever played Sid Meier's Civilization will tell you, is pretty much a declaration of war. What are you doing? Military exercises. Oh yeah, sure, okay. Everyone brace yourselves, the invasion's coming. So Ukraine were prepared. The Ukraine resistance was organized on all things on Twitter. Because how else would you organize a 21st century war? And the Ukraine Twitter account essentially acted as fire coordination, telling guerrillas where they could find juicy Russian targets to hit. And naturally, the juicy targets that they hit were the fuel trucks, the weak link in a supply chain full of weak links. And naturally, the Russians tried to disguise their fuel trucks to no longer look like fuel trucks to stop them from getting blown up. And then the Twitter account swiftly came up with updated target profiles and photos of what the fuel trucks look like now. And as I keep saying, and I will continue to say, the future is weird and fascinating. Russia genuinely expected to push all the way to and capture Kiev in two days. I honestly, genuinely do not understand where this thinking comes from. It is utter insanity. Even if we accept that Putin is a few cards short of a deck, he used to run the KGB, knowing this kind of stuff was his job, and he was the best in the world at it. There is no way he could have possibly expected to capture Kiev in two days. 
The Iraq War started on the 2nd of March 2003, and Baghdad didn't fall until April the 10th. The United States military was so much better and so much more prepared than the Russians, and the Iraqis were so much worse and so much less prepared than Ukraine, and they weren't even backed by NATO, and it still took that long. I cannot fathom the thinking behind why Russia thought they would take Kiev in two days. So when the Ukrainian resistance lasted into the third day, the entire Russian battle plan went down the tube. They had massive logistic and supply problems. They thought they could take Kiev in two days, so they budgeted two days' worth of stuff. When day three dawned, everything went to shit. And that's when you start to see all of the abandoned Russian tanks and vehicles with no fuel being hauled off by Ukrainian farmers, and the webcam footage of Russian soldiers raiding 7-Elevens for packets of chips because they didn't have rations. Vladimir Putin pulled a classic Hitler move and not just the invasion and war crimes part of it. As I've previously discussed, when Hitler invaded Russia during Operation Barbarossa, he purposely didn't allow his troops winter uniforms because he saw it as a sign of weakness that they wouldn't conquer Russia before the winter. Putin, military genius, has made exactly the same mistake. He sent his troops into Ukraine with exactly two days' worth of supplies because he was convinced that it would only take two days. So when day three popped up, it was a real bad time to be a Russian conscript. I can't independently verify this because the sources are Ukrainian and they're not exactly objective, but I've read reports that when the Ukrainians have captured Russian soldiers, they found that the Russian soldiers' packs were filled not with supplies or food or ammunition, but they were in fact carrying their full dress uniforms. You know, the fancy ones, because they were going to capture Ukraine in two days and then have a big parade to show off how awesome they were, and, well, you know, it's not really panning out, is it? Godwin's law never applies when someone does something that is exactly what Hitler did. In short, Russian logistics are a nightmare. In the words of General John Pershing, quote, Infantry wins battles, logistics wins wars. End quote. And I do feel obligated to mention, however, whenever Pershing's name comes up, that I need to remind everyone that he ordered one of the last ever attacks in the First World War, at dawn on the 11th of November 1918, when everyone knew that the armistice was going to be signed later that morning, and there was no need to fight, and thousands of people died for a hill no one wanted on the last day of the war because John Pershing was an absolute piece of shit. Sorry, what was I talking about? The Russians have been using old-fashioned analog radio systems that are unencrypted. I can't tell you the actual reason why they're doing this, but like everything else, I'd assume it comes back to the fact that they thought they'd have a knockout punch in two days and they wouldn't need anything more advanced. But the problem with unencrypted communications is, well, as you can probably guess, they're unencrypted. Ukrainian allied hackers hit those unencrypted radio networks really hard. And this is where it starts to get fun. Ukrainian allied hackers don't need to be in Ukraine. They can be anywhere in the world. Anonymous got involved. So these people started messing with the radio frequencies so that whenever Russians tried to use their communications, they would hear pig squeals or fart noises or gay sex. Again, this is a meme war. I read one account where they hacked the frequencies so that it played back a binary code that when it entered by Russians, it rickrolled the person playing it. Which, I guess, is a tad hack, but I can't really grade soldiers in a war for comedic style points. 
So one question I've been getting is this. Why is Ukraine so desperate to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Well, like I said in the show, once you own the sky, you win the war. And the only chance Ukraine has is if the Russians can't effectively deploy their air force. The Ghost of Kiev is a great propaganda piece, but he's not real. He's from a video game. And unfortunately, I've seen a couple of videos of Ukrainians fighting and the Russian forces retreating en masse, and then they're all cheering because they think that they've won because the Russians are running away. But this isn't the Middle Ages. If you see a modern army retreat like that, it isn't because they're broken and they're running away. It's because the entire area is about to be bombed. Ukraine needs a no-fly zone to stay in the fight. And it needs NATO to do this because NATO has all of the really cool jets that can fly upside down and take photos of the Russian fighters with a Polaroid camera. You were in a 4G inverted dive with the MiG-28? Yes, ma'am. At what range? No, about two meters. Well, it's actually about one and a half, I think. It was one and a half. I've got a great Polaroid of it. And he's, he's right there. Must be one and a half. a nice picture. So that's why they need a no-fly zone. They need NATO to establish an area where Russian bombers can't play. But that doesn't mean that NATO hasn't been helping. They just haven't sent jets yet. NATO has been helping in a big way. In fact, just yesterday, the Biden administration authorized another massive arms package to be sent to aid Ukraine, and he didn't even try and blackmail the Ukrainian president with it. I mean, what a guy. And in the darkest and best joke that I've heard in a long, long time... Someone I saw on Reddit said, Russia is about to be hit with the entire reason the US can't afford universal healthcare, which is, again, incredibly dark, but also incredibly... So I'm about to spend 15 minutes talking about a missile. But I promise it's pertinent, and this is the hardcore bonus show after all. You all knew what you were signing up for. But again, it is going to be 15 minutes about a missile. In the weeks leading up to the war... NATO, led in chief by the United States, funneled over 17,000 anti-tank weapons to Ukraine, understanding that Russia's invasion would be primarily a tank-based invasion. And this is true. These anti-tank weapons are a big deal. The vast majority of these weapons are the FGM-148 Javelin anti-tank missile. The Javelin was designed at the height of the Cold War specifically to combat the threat of Soviet tanks. And this is pretty much the first time that these missiles have ever been used for the purpose for which they were invented. Now, I'm talking about an implement that is designed to kill several people every time it's fired, so I'll try and keep that in mind. But from a purely military application point of view, the Javelin is a work of art when it comes to taking down tanks. It is genius. The unit itself looks like a bazooka with a set of binoculars and a computer on it. These binoculars use a number of different thermal imaging modes, so things like darkness and smoke don't really worry it. And the computer allows the person wielding it to set the coordinates of an enemy tank, pull the trigger, and then run away. In military parlance, this is known as fire and forget. The famous Hellfire missile actually gets its name from this. It's a truncation of helicopter fire and forget. The targeting system for the Javelin is ridiculously easy to use. The official United States military course takes 20 minutes. Then you're signed off on Javelin use. But here's the scary thing. This is truly scary. The Javelin missile system appears in several editions of the popular video game series Call of Duty. 50,000 people used to live here. 
Now it's a ghost town. If you've ever played Call of Duty, then you essentially know how to operate a Javelin missile system. It's that easy to use, and it was designed to be that easy to use. It was literally designed to be used by people who have played COD. And the Ukraine soldiers using it have found that they do not need training on the Javelin system because they have all played Call of Duty. Welcome to the dystopian future that we live in. So if you're using a Javelin, you can hide in some bushes, pick out a target, fire, and then get the hell away from where you were because people are going to start shooting at you because people tend to not like being shot by anti-tank missiles. So you really have to appreciate what an advantage it is to not be where people are shooting. Another big problem with rockets is that they have fire coming out of the back of them. That's how a rocket works. A fire is bright and flashy. It lets people know where you are. The javelin gets around this by not using the rocket part straight away. Instead, it sort of squirts the rocket out in kind of like a thunk, and then it fires off the rocket. So it goes a little bit like two or three meters and then fires the rocket. This gives you a chance to get away from where you were and get into cover again before all of the bullets start coming in. But it also means that it doesn't have backblast coming out of the weapon itself. This is huge. If you've watched as many videos as I have on E-Bombs World back in the day before the internet was regulated, you've seen the kind of damage that rocket exhaust can do. If you're accidentally standing behind an RPG when it's fired, you just die instantly. The pressure blast literally turns off your brain. It's like a little off switch. Javelins don't have this, which is great because it means that you can use them inside a small room. A small room such as an apartment building where the Russians don't know which unit you're actually in. And once it's launched, the Javelin missile doesn't go directly towards the tank. It actually shoots straight up in the air, and it hits the target tank from above. Modern tanks have amazing armor. There's complicated things like ceramics and active activated armor, and things that are good at absorbing the kinetic force of anti-tank weapons. They're quite advanced. A modern tank is essentially invulnerable from the front, because they're generally driving into danger, and it's almost invulnerable on the sides because people will try and get around the tank, and it's fairly well armored at the rear because there's a real chance that people will be able to get around the tank and maybe hit it from there. But a tank can only move so much weight and carry so much armor around. You need to cut weight where you can, which means that tanks are fairly lightly armored on the top, which is exactly where the javelin missile hits them. It goes up high and then it hits them like a thunderbolt, plowing straight into the engine block or ammunition stores. The US Army imaginatively calls this the curveball. When it hits, the javelin actually has two warheads. First, it shoots a small bomb directly into the armor of the tank, defeating any countermeasures that they might have and blowing a hole in the tank's armor, and then it shoots the main warhead into the small hole it just made and directly into the squishy insides of the tank, and then the tank goes boom. Ukraine is using these to devastating effect. And if you think the whole boom thing is upsetting, it is, but at least it's quick. There are a lot of anti-tank measures out there in the world today that are a whole lot nastier than this. There are certain systems out there like some sabot weapons that work by punching a small hole in the tank and then squirting the crew with molten copper to quote-unquote disable that crew. So war is hell and we should never do it. But back to the javelin. In a testament to the outrageous military-industrial complex of the United States of America, 
Each and every one of these missiles costs $175,000 US. Each and every time you pull the trigger on one of these, it's the equivalent of firing a Maserati sports car at the Russians. Oh, and while they're very effective against tanks, they're even more effective against things that aren't tanks, like helicopters and fuel trucks, which I've mentioned. Ukraine has been given 17,000 of these things, and they can potentially remove anything with an engine that Russia sends over the border, which is pretty much everything. And while I'm always a bit of a military history geek, I do try to rein it in, as much as you might not think. It's just that this particular weapon is one of the decisive factors in this entire conflict. I'm not even being hyperbolic right now. As of right now, there are Ukrainian soldiers carrying pictures of the Virgin Mary carrying a Javelin anti-tank missile. They literally call her Saint Javelin, the patron saint of Ukraine. You can go online and fact check me on that one. It is real. Saint Javelin exists. And also, while researching the Javelin missile, I had to listen to so, so many people who sounded exactly like George W. Bush talk very excitedly about this weapon and repeatedly pronounce the word vehicle as vehicle, so I've suffered too, okay? So the Ukraine army can get a fire team of four people, a Javelin operator, a spotter slash loader, and two gunners on Overwatch, put them in a high-level apartment building overlooking a Russian tank column, and they just go to town. The Russians won't know where the missile is coming from, so they can't shoot back. And even if they do see it coming, the fire team has already displaced to somewhere that they can't see. And even if they do track all of that, a Russian tank barrel can only traverse so high, so someone in a high-rise can rain fire down with impunity and absolutely annihilate Russian tank columns. Or at least until an airstrike is called in if there's not a no-fly zone. Of course, all of this is only if you want to destroy the tank. You don't need to destroy the tank at all. You only need to be able to stop the tank from being a tank. And this is much easier to achieve, and the Ukrainians have been incredibly resourceful on this front. For a lot of the following, I will be citing the United States Marine Corps Guide to Anti-Tank Warfare. The version I got a hold of is the declassified one, and it is older than I am, but the principles are pretty much the same. And since the Russian main tank in the current war is the T-90, which came into service in 1992, we're not far out of the ballpark. You would be very surprised at how old most of the military tech in the world is. The most common machine gun in the world is still the Browning 50 cal, and that's been in service for well over a century now. Anyway, I'll be citing from my copy of the United States Marine Corps Guide, which is nicknamed, quote, Hunting tanks is fun and easy, end quote. That's right. Sometimes I go to the dark web for you guys. Russian tanks don't use heat-based night vision optics. They use optoelectronic enhancement. You know, the green vision that everyone thinks when they think of night vision. That's it. This has its place, but that place is not in a tank during wartime. Thermal vision tranks heat, obviously. So if someone is sneaking up to your tank to put a bomb on it, you can still see their body heat even in pitch blackness or a smokescreen. And if you can see them, you can shoot them. But if you don't have thermal vision, you only have optoelectronic vision, then you run into a problem. Everything in your scope gets flattened and washed out. You can't see behind anything. And the Ukraine guerrillas are discovering that in the black of night, they can literally hold up a sheet of cardboard, and the Russian tanks won't be able to differentiate them from any other obstacles on the road. A cardboard box makes them almost invisible to Russian tanks. Place bomb, walk away, Like a cool guy, do not look at the explosion. 
you can do what is called buttoning a tank. This goes all the way back to World War II. Tanks are heavily armoured, except for where they're not. Certain things can't have armour plating on them. Things like windows, cameras, sights, periscopes. Shoot them and the tank is blind. Blind tanks are useless tanks. But this is all old stuff, established tank doctrine. Let's take a look at the distinctly modern problems. There's the old adage that everyone perfects fighting the last war in time for the next one. Well, this is the first real war of the Web 2.0 age. What I mean by that is that this is the first war fought when the internet is an assumed given in everyone's lives. We've never had that before. Russia invaded Ukraine by using Ukraine's road and highway networks. There's nothing new there. That's as old as war itself. Germany invaded Russia using Russian roads in World War II. England invaded America using American roads in the War of 1812. Alaric invaded Rome using Roman roads in 410. Cyrus the Great marched down the Khorasan Highway to Assyria in the 600s BCE. It's nothing new. But what is new is that the internet is everywhere now. Ukraine, like pretty much everywhere else in the world right now, has an internet-integrated traffic system. It has cameras at most intersections and webcams monitoring traffic hotspots. Just like right now, all of you can log onto a government site and check the traffic conditions on just down the road, well, Ukrainians can log on and check to see Russian troop movements, which roads they're using, and where and how they're deploying their forces, all through the same traffic cameras. This has never happened before in a war. It is entirely novel. So novel, in fact, that it took the Russians three days to figure out that they needed to shoot out the traffic cameras as they drove along. Which still leaves you with the problem of knowing exactly where the Russians are because of which traffic cameras have been shot out. And we'll look for the house next to the house with no numbers. Shooting out the cameras takes ammunition. It's not much, obviously, but every bullet fired is a bullet that has to be delivered from Mother Russia via an already stretched logistics network. Every little bit counts. And you might be thinking, well, why not just get some bolt cutters and snip the wires that are on these traffic cameras? And I see where your head's at, and it's great. But Ukraine, like everywhere else in the world, has a problem with vandals. So all of their street cameras, just like everywhere else in the world, are protected by a steel sheath to stop the ne'er-do-wells from ne'er-do-welling. Not going to stop an army, obviously, but when time is an issue, like, say, during an invasion, you just need to shoot out the cameras. You can actually jump onto Google Maps right now and see where the fighting is happening in Kiev and the Kiev suburbs based on what Google automatically logs as bad traffic. Google can't differentiate bad traffic from a tank column. And on that, during the opening stages of the war, it came out that Russians were still using old-fashioned paper maps, like some kind of medieval peasants. So the Ukraine government put out a call, via Twitter, to all citizens to mess with the Russian invasion by changing all the street signs so that the Russians wouldn't know where they were going. And before you ask, yes, the Russian army has access to GPS, Yes, their soldiers have Google Maps on their phones, but one of the first things you do in a war is shut down the phone and internet networks so enemy forces can't use it. And even if you've got a signal, which military units do, you still need landmarks to confirm your position. You don't want to be rolling into an ambush because Google didn't get your location right to within a meter. So you use the local street signs. And what happens when people fuck with these street signs? And this is interesting. 
Initially, the Ukrainians went with the funny angle. And again, I can't deduct points for hack comedy. You had Russian tank columns pausing for directions at the intersection of Eat a Dick Road and Go Fuck Yourself Avenue, which is fun. But then Ukraine realized that it was way more effective to change the signs around and send the Russians in the wrong direction. Now, on the surface, this might seem like some Bugs Bunny-style shenanigans, but it gets even better. Something I learned when I used to work out at the airport is that asphalt is actually pretty flimsy. In the aviation business, there are two major kinds of planes, what we call narrow-body planes and wide-body planes. Narrow bodies are your 737s, your A320s, the little ones you get for domestic flights. Wide-body planes are the big boys, your 747s and your A380s. Well, when I was working out at the airport, I asked why the big aircraft only ever came into the same bays at the airport, while the small planes could go anywhere they wanted. And I learned that the wide-body aircraft could only go where the tarmac had been reinforced with steel, because a wide-body aircraft is so heavy that it could actually punch through the ground. Well, guess what? It's the same thing with tanks. Tanks are freaking heavy, and the average suburban street isn't built to take that kind of weight. Only things like major arterial roads and highways are built for that kind of punishment. So if you send a Russian tank the wrong direction and it goes down a road that wasn't made to take that weight, that tank is getting a free trip to the sewer. And a tank that is stranded in the sewer is a tank that is no longer in the war. But like I've said before, you don't need to hit the tanks. A tank is only useful if it has fuel and ammunition, otherwise it's a very expensive paperweight. Why hit the heavily armoured tanks when you can target the aforementioned very lightly armoured Scooby-Doo vans? Hitting the fuel trucks gives you a few distinct advantages. First off, the obvious. Vehicles can't go anywhere without fuel, and tanks go through fuel like popcorn. They only have an effective range of about 100 kilometers on average under somewhat optimal conditions before they need refueling. So if you take out the fuel trucks, you severely limit the operational range of a tank. But there's a couple of other benefits to this that you may not think of if you're normal people who don't think about how to conduct a war in your spare time. A tank that has no fuel isn't just stranded, it's a roadblock. You have to go around it. And if there's only a single lane road, well then one stranded tank can hold up an entire invasion. But you don't even need to hit the tanks, just hit the fuel trucks. A flaming fuel truck is just as effective. No one's able to go through a flaming fuel truck. But wait, there's more. If you hit a fuel truck and get it cooking, then that fuel truck will burn hot. It will burn so hot for so long that it will actually begin to melt the road beneath it. So much so that if you were to push the burning wreckage out of the way and then try and drive a tank through it, the molten asphalt will act like tar to a dinosaur and that tank will be dug up by Sam Neill in 65 million years. But there's other things you can do. If you take a bunch of dinner plates and spray paint them black, then from the periscope of a tank, they look pretty much like landmines. The tank driver knows they're not landmines, but how many people would be willing to risk their lives on that assumption? Especially if the Ukrainians have peppered a major arterial road with dozens of these fake landmines, but maybe they put one real one in there just for shits and giggles. 
So even if the tank force knows that they aren't landmines, they still have to stop and check each and every one of them with a full hurt locker crew. This takes time. And the thing is, tanks always operate with combined arms. There's always a crew of infantry with them at all times. These infantry can easily walk up and see that it's very obviously a dinner plate sitting on the road, and they could very easily all walk up to it and throw it away, or the tank could just drive over it and grind it into dust, but they all have to follow procedure just in case it is an actual bomb. And the whole time, they're exposed to enemy fire. But wait, there's more. If you put an old front loader washing machine out in the snow, and you stick a broomstick out the front of it, and you clear the snowbank around it, and maybe put some barbed wire in front of it or something, then from the ground, it looks like you've put a broom in a washing machine. But from a drone flying five kilometers in the air, it looks enough like an AA gun that you can't really tell the difference. And the bomb you drop on it definitely can't tell the difference. Either way, the old washing machine and broom are probably worth about 50 bucks, but the bomb they dropped on it cost Russia about 50,000. This is one of the ways that asymmetrical warfare works. One side is a lot more cost-effective than the other. This is exactly what happens in the Israel-Palestine conflict too. And a quick aside here, once the Ukraine thing is done, we're all going to need to take a real good long look at the whole Israel-Palestine thing. Anyway, Israel has the famous Iron Dome defense system. You know the thing that intercepts any missiles fired into Israel? Well, every single time that thing fires, it costs Israel $150,000. And if you've ever watched footage of the Iron Dome firing, it launches hundreds of these things per volley. The rockets that Hezbollah are firing into Israel cost them about $300 each. The tactic isn't to actually get any rockets to hit Israel, it's about getting them to just activate the Iron Dome because it costs about $15 million every single time. It will eventually slowly bankrupt Israel. But back to Ukraine. There's a lot of talk about little Ukrainian babushkas filling up Molotov cocktails to fight against the Russians, which gets a lot of play because Hollywood loves a good Molotov cocktail, and then there's the irony of the Molotov cocktail itself named after Mikhailovich Molotov, the famous Soviet diplomat with a penchant for, shall we say, aggressive negotiations. We call this a diplomatic solution? No, I call it aggressive negotiations. But a Molotov cocktail is kind of hard to use, and it's dangerous for everyone involved in the process. If you throw a Molotov cocktail at a military vehicle, and you don't hit the vehicle in the vulnerable but hard-to-access exhaust ports, then that military vehicle doesn't give a shit about being on fire, and it'll just keep right on driving. But if you whack it in the windscreen with a water bomb filled with paint, then that thing needs to go back to a car wash before you can use it again. Gets taken out of action for a little bit. It's weird to see ex-Special Forces agents from all over the world jump on Twitter and Reddit and offer advice on how to conduct an urban war. And of course, there's a lot of teenage edgelords who played a little bit of Call of Duty from their basements, but that ratio of actual experts to teenage edgelords exists for anything from urban combat to marital advice, and we're all familiar with how to filter it all out. Basically, it's a bunch of veterans from all the United States failed operations, and they've got a lot of them, talking about all of the terrifying shit that the insurgents of those countries used to do to them, and then saying, look, here's what happened to us. It sure would be a shame if this were to happen to Russia right now. And it seems to be working. And there you go. 
a bit of insight into things on the ground in one of the more pointless wars that has ever been fought. I hope you found it half as interesting as I did, because I can almost guarantee that nobody finds this as interesting as I do, because I'm weird, but I submit it for your consideration. What we've got is a waning 20th century superpower being utterly unprepared to fight a war in the new millennium, and it's getting kind of embarrassing. But let's not forget either that there are a lot of innocent people being killed for one crazy man's dick measuring contest, and this is all only interesting to us because we have the luxury of distance, we're not there on the ground. And this is why I tend to stick to actual history, it's because it's a lot easier when everything is already long resolved. Remember, the fight against fascism requires constant vigilance, and there but for the grace of God go all of us. Remember that next time you vote.